All right, okay. Well, we're in a series called Follow. We're, uh, we're quite a ways in. We're going through the book of Luke. And the book of Luke is a very, very huge book. And so we decided to break up into small chunks. And this small chunk is called Follow. We're looking through Luke's chapter 6 and 7. And today we're going to be looking specifically at Luke chapter 7 from verse 11. And, um, um, you know, quick story. Uh, when when uh, this is years before I started dating my now wife, um, I started a little Bible study at, at I, I went to UCLA, so did she, and we, we, I started a Bible study because I thought, hey, it'd be great to just kind of get, get into the Word and stuff like that, and she attended and a few other people attended. If you ask her, she has a different version of the story, by the way, um, but you can trust me because I'm the pastor. But, uh, <laughs> but um, I started this Bible study, and you know, at first there was like three people who showed up, and that was kind of cool. It was like a really small group. And then eventually people started dropping off because it's like midterms and then eventually finals. But she kept on coming, and so it eventually became one-on-one, and people started talking. You know, like, oh, what a cool Bible study. No, that was, that's not what they were saying. They were saying things like, oh, Kotz is using Bible study to get close to girls and stuff like that, which was totally not my intention, right? And so eventually I had to kind of put an end to it. I'm like, okay, we're not going to meet anymore. You know, but um, all somebody had to do was just come up to me and ask me, hey, Kotz, you know, what are your intentions? Like, why are you doing this? And if, if, if they just asked me, I would have just told them, oh, there's no ulterior motive here. I'm just trying to do a Bible study. But if this really bothers you guys, then we can just end it right now. You know, it was like that, right? But a lot of times, you know, you've heard people say that actions speak louder than words. You guys heard that before? But the problem with that phrase is that sometimes the message that's conveyed through these actions is basically your assumptions of what you think is happening, right? So I could do something nice for somebody, but that person could look at that action and see it as something that's offensive, right? So the question is, what is the, mo- what is the motivation here? What is the intention behind your action? And here's the interesting thing about when we read through the Bible, okay? A lot of times, especially the Old Testament, when God does certain things, sometimes he doesn't tell us what his motivation is. Sometimes God doesn't tell us what the intention behind his actions are. Every once in a while, he'll say, I'm doing this because blah, 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 blah. But more often than not, he really doesn't tell you exactly why he's doing these things. And maybe this is a story that you could relate to, right? For example, uh, like the question I want to ask is this, why does God do blank? And, you know, when we look at it and try to analyze what God is doing, we all become these expert theologians, don't we? Right? We start saying things like, oh, you know, I was, I was working really hard to get this job and I got it and that was God's will for me. Only to find out a few months later that this job doesn't really fit you and so all of a sudden you're like, maybe that wasn't God's plan. And, or something bad happens to you and then you automatically assume, I think the intention behind that is God trying to punish me. And so you come up with these assumptions. You look at God's action and you come up with these assumptions of why God does certain things in your life. And, but you know as much as I do that you, you live through those implications for a few months and you look back and you realize, oh, maybe, me, maybe I misassessed uh, what, what God's intention there. You know? And so it's really hard to tell what God is, why, you know, it's, sometimes it's easy to see what, what God is doing, but it's really hard to see why God is doing these things or why he allowed these things to happen to you. Maybe lately something bad happened to you and you said, this is because God doesn't love me. And you know what? If you just looked at that one story, it's easy to just assume that, right? But months later, you look back and you realize, you know that relationship that didn't quite work out? Maybe that was God's plan because if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. And so it's really hard to tell what God's intentions are. It's really hard. And as a matter of fact, people in the Old Testament, these people had the same problem. 
There's a lot of books in the Old Testament where bad things happen to good people, and they're like, why did this happen? And they come up with these, these theories of what it might be. And the book of Job is a great example of, at the end, God shows up and says, no, you guys are all wrong. You know? And so today we're going to be looking at one story. Now, we're going to eventually get to the book of Luke because the book of Luke, that w- the part we're looking at today, requires us to know this other story in the Old Testament. Okay, so we're going to look at the book of 1 Kings, starting from chapter 17. We're going to skip around because, uh, because of time, but we're going to start off with this character named Elijah. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets that's ever lived. If you were a Jew in the first century, and, and if they ask you, hey, what is, who are the greatest prophets of the Old Testament? Elijah will be in your top three for sure. Okay, so Elijah is a big deal. And this is a story about that character, Elijah. Let's take a look. Chapter 17, verse 10. Elijah went to Zarephath. You don't have to know where that is. Zarephath is, is near the coast of, of uh, Israel. Uh, when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. Now, I highlighted a few words here because these are some key words I want you to keep. You don't have to memorize them. But these key words are going to play a role in later, when we look at it later. Okay, so a guy named Elijah goes to a place called Zarephath. He goes to the town and he sees the, the town gate. And there he sees a widow. Okay, are we good so far? Okay. Next verse. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Now, I skipped a few verses there. But Elijah was living with this family, with this widow and her only son. And as he's there, the widow noticed that his son's getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and eventually he dies. He stopped breathing. It's a really sad story. But this is what happens. This is where the woman here becomes like a theologian, right? She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Like, this didn't happen before you showed up, Elijah. Why is this happening to me now? I know, did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Okay, so the woman here, this widow, has an assumption that she's living off of, right? The assumption is this. I did something bad. We don't know what that is. Maybe she stole candy. I don't know, right? And she's like... Elijah, you knew that I did that bad thing a few months ago, a few weeks ago, a few years ago, I don't know what, you know, but like you knew about my sin. And it's because of my sin that you're punishing me by taking away my child, my only son. She has, all of a sudden, she, she's like an expert in how God works, right? She's like, I know God is a God of punishment. Yeah, that, that must be it, yeah. And she, he is punishing me for not living the life that I was supposed to live. Oh, 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 okay, Elijah, I see why you came here in the first place. You came here to punish me on behalf of God. Now, Elijah, his response is very, very interesting because it turns out in the next part we're going to read together, we're going to discover that Elijah is just following orders. He also doesn't know why he was sent to this house in the first place. Take a look. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. So he has a corpse now on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord. Now listen to what he says. Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? So Elijah is like, I have no idea why this happened, but she thinks it's because it's punishment. And so God, why would you do this? So Elijah is starting to believe the woman's story, right? The reason why God allowed this to happen, is it because you're punishing her? God, right? Because God never clarified his intention. His intention. Why, you know, somebody dying, was that God who did it? We don't know, right? Elijah's just following orders here. Next verse. Then he stretched himself out 
on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Now, what's interesting here is that he, it says that he stretched his body out on him three times, and we don't have no clue what that really means. The word that's used there is only translated as stretched here in this passage, and nowhere else. Everywhere else, that word is translated as something else. So I was trying to figure out, like, what does that look like? Like, is he lying down with a corpse on his bed three times? Uh, what is he trying to do here? But the point that the writer here is trying to make is this. Whatever Elijah did here was considered impure. You're not supposed to touch a dead body. That was Jewish custom. It was part of the purity law. You're not supposed to touch a dead body. But he does it three times, and he cries out to God, and now the, 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 the son is alive now, right? And so this is how that story ends. Next verse. Then Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. So he actually hands her the, bo the body that's now alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So all of a sudden, this woman, her understanding of God originally was punisher, right? And now he's like, Oh, praise God. You know, like, God is good. And so even in this story, we see, like, we're not really sure what God was trying to do here. Right? As a matter of fact, was it God that took the life away, or was that not God? Or was it, so wait, I'm sure God was a part of raising this child back to life, but was it, like, which part did God play, and when he did those certain things, what was his intention? Was he trying to teach me a lesson? I mean, some of you guys have had tragedies in your life, and you guys have used some logic in your mind to figure out, oh, you know what, God allowed that bad thing to happen to teach me something. And so in your mind, you're, you're trying to figure out, you're trying to justify the bad thing that happened to your life and still maintain the fact that God is good, right? And so you're trying to move things around in your mind to make sure that you come to this conclusion that God is good, right? And this is exactly what these people are doing. They're trying to find out which part in this story did God play, and when he did it, what was his intention, right? So in this story, I just want to point out a few things, okay? Here are the key points that I highlighted for you. In this story... Elijah met the woman at the town gate. There was a widow that was in this story. There was a son who died. And then after finding out the son was dead, the, the healer, in this case, he did some impure actions, right? That sounds kind of bad. But you know, he did some things that were not custom for people to do back then. And then at the end, when the, kid came, the son came back to life, he, he handed the body back to the mother. These are the key things I want you to keep in mind. Because what you're going to discover, we're going to go to the book of Luke now, um, what you're going to discover is that in the book of Luke, the writer, Luke, he's intentionally trying to bring back this memory. So the book of Luke takes place 500 years after the events of 1 Kings. Okay, So 500 years later, Luke is watching Jesus do all these things, and he's writing down some things, and he's like, oh my goodness, this reminds me of the story of 1 Kings. So let's see if you pick up on some of these little details. Okay, let's take a look at Luke 7. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, Nain, and his disciples and a larger crowd went along with him. Okay, so, so far so good. Now, look at the details in the next verse. As he approached the town gate, where have you seen that before? A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So all of a sudden at this point, Jesus is walking to Nain and he sees this thing happening. And Luke is like, oh my gosh, this reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. A large crowd from the town was with her. Because this is the funeral. Back in those days, when somebody died, you wanted to take the body out of the town because the town would be considered unclean if the dead body was there too long, okay? 
Now, the story goes on. When the Lord saw her, the heart, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now, what's interesting here is, is this, okay? In the Old Testament, we have this story about a widow who lost a son and then was brought back to life. Jesus comes to a situation where he sees a widow at the town gate, and his, that woman, that the, the widow's only son, is now dead. Now, a few things we need to know about widows back then, okay? In those days... Women received their value and their worth from their husbands. Women usually typically didn't work, so the, their living was basically dependent on their husbands. Okay, so to have a husband die and become a widow was a huge deal. That means you have to somehow make ends meet on your own. If you didn't get remarried, you have to find a way to make sure your ends, like, that you could pay the bills, you could feed your kids. But it was a temporary setback because as long as you're able to raise your son to a certain age, Eventually, your son could take care of you, and because he's a man, he could be the one that could bring his value and worth back into your family. But having your only son die, also being a widow and having your only son die meant that it's tough for you now, it's going to be tough until the day you die because you have no retirement plan. Having a son was part of the retirement plan. You didn't, they didn't have like a, a 401k or anything like that back then. The best way for you to ensure that you're taken care of after you're really old okay, is to make sure that you had a son that could take care of you. So when this, Jesus sees this, he sees, he sees a woman who doesn't have a husband anymore and doesn't have a son. So that means this woman in this story doesn't have a present or a future. And so Jesus' heart breaks for her. Next verse. Then he went up and touched the, I think it's pronounced beer, not the kind you drink. I, okay. Uh, that's basically like a casket, but it's open, and so everybody can see it. It's like a little stretcher. Uh, they were carrying him on, and the, the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. So Jesus touches the corpse, and he tells, whispers into the ear of this corpse, young man, I say, get up. Next verse. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. There's that detail again, right? Do you see the parallels between the two stories? Why is Luke recording for us this story in a way that calls us back to the book of 1 Kings? Why is he doing this? It's because the big question people had in the book of 1 Kings is, what part of this was God's plan? Was it God's plan for the widow's son to die? Because if it is, then why did you do that, God? Right? And then Elijah shows up and brings the son back to life, and they're like, praise God, like, what, what was God's heart when he did that? And nobody knows the answer to it, because the person who's representing God in this story, which is Elijah, he has no clue. He's just following orders. We know that from his dialogue. Like, he's like, I, I, God, is that true? The woman said that you're punishing her for her sins? Right? We have no idea. But in this story, what we discover is when people are watching Jesus do this whole thing, there's a huge callback in their minds back to the book of 1 Kings. They're like, Jesus is just like Elijah. But there's a small detail in here that's a little different. Remember how Elijah had to stretch himself out over the course three times and pray and cry out to God in order for this, body, this boy to come back to life? Jesus just walks over and whispers like, get up, get up, get up, come on. And he wakes up and he starts talking, right? <laughs> and so they're like, whoa. At first when I saw this, I thought you were just like Elijah. Jesus, you're just like Elijah. You're like one of the greatest prophets. But you did it in a different way. You did it in an easier way. You made it look easy. And so when people read this story in the first century, these people who knew the Old Testament stories, when they read this, this is what they discovered. is that one greater than the greatest prophet has come. They're like, 
Jesus, is, is, is he the real deal? Because he just did something that even the greatest prophet struggled to do. He just did it just like that, right? Whew. And this is why when that happened, the people in the Luke story, they responded this way. They were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. Like, wow, look, we read the story of Elijah, and this guy right here, I think his name is Jesus, he's not, ju not just as good, but he's greater than the greatest prophet that we've known. Oh, this is great. But then, after that, they say something interesting. They say this, God has come to help his people. There are people in the crowd who look at this story and recognize he's not just a prophet. Right? Next slide. You see, because we said one greater than the greatest prophet has come, but there are people there who also realize something else, which is this. God in the flesh is here. God in a bod. They looked at this situation and said, he's not just a prophet. It seems like he has this power over death. Like, there's something going on about this. He must be God, but God is spirit. Wait a minute. He's in a he's in body form. God in a bod, he's here. Like, they realize, if this is really God here amongst us, right? If God is here, and he's walking around eating and chatting and hanging out with everybody else, just like, you know, the next guy, right? We have a lot of questions for you, Jesus. We have a lot of questions. So when people read the book of Luke, chapter 7, especially this section we're talking about today, there's a few conclusions they came to. Number one is this, that Jesus is God. Like, we can't deny it. Jesus, I think, I think you're God. Now, so far in the book of Luke, nobody's revealed this except for the people who were there for the birth of Jesus. Jesus has not come out on the scene and said, guys, just so you guys know, I am the G-O-D. He hasn't done that yet. That comes later in the story. But he's dropping these hints in the book of Luke, little by little, telling people like, hey, have you seen what I just did? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is, but I'm just going to give you a hint. Right. So the first thing is people are realizing who Jesus, Jesus really is. He's like an undercover boss. But, you know, he doesn't want anybody to know, right? That's what's going on. Okay, but there's a second thing here that's happening that people are, like, blown away by. Because, remember, we have a parallel story in the book of 1 Kings that's happening also in the book of Luke, chapter 7. And the question is, what was God's motivation? What part of this did God play in and all that kind of stuff? It turns out, in this story, Jesus reveals for us the heart that God had back in the book of 1 Kings. You see, the first thing is that they read this further, they're like, oh yes, Jesus is God. But number two is this. Jesus is revealing the heart and intention of God. How did God feel when Elijah and the woman were looking at the dead body? How did God feel? Well, let's look at Jesus. How did he feel? I mean, this is God in the flesh. So like, let's just look at Jesus. How did he react? And I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 13, it reveals what Jesus felt, which is this. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. You see that phrase that says, the heart went out to her? Um, that's a really complicated compound word, a uh, Greek word, and it's this. I'm putting this up here so I look smart to you guys. Um, but the part that's highlighted in yellow is the word splangna. And that basically means, like, here, here's the translation. And this actually means, it means internal organs. Okay, and is they're saying that they tore, like when Jesus saw this thing happen, his internal organs moved. Okay, I probably need to explain something about this. Okay, um, you know how we today we say our feelings come from our heart, but we know for a fact that it's all these chemical reactions that's happening in your brain, right? Okay, 
Back in those days, 2,000 years ago, they believed that your emotions and your gut feeling actually came from your gut. That came from your internal organs around here. And so if, if you study Greek in the, in the New Testament, you'll discover like people like the Apostle Paul saying, I mean this for my splagnon. And you're like, what is he talking about? Bowel movements? Like, what is he talking about here? What he's talking about is, you know, in those days, they didn't have the science that we have today. They don't know exactly how the emotions work. But what they did know is that when your heart was crushed, when you were heartbroken, you just had this really weird feeling in your stomach to the point where you can't sleep at night and you, you can't eat anything because you just feel so sick to your stomach. Do you guys know what I mean? That here is what Jesus felt. When Jesus saw a widow and her only son pass away, he was mourning with her, looking at the situation, and he was like, you just lost your son. That must be so hard. Losing anybody is hard. Losing your son is really hard, right? And not only that, you lost your husband not too long ago, so that means that you, the only job that you could have back in those days, if you had to make ends meet, and if you're a woman, the only job that you had going for you was prostitution, which would cast you even out even further into society, right, as you know, marginalized. So Jesus is like, I can't believe you're in this situation. And you just lost your son. That means you have no future. So you can start to see how Jesus was feeling here. He, he was heartbroken. So why did Jesus do the things he did? Because he did some things. Okay, remember, Elijah stretched out his body over the corpse three times, which is impure. That's not clean. Jewish people should not do that, okay? Jesus touches the beer. Not, you know, not the beer, but, you know, the body, the, the structure. Right? He touches the body, which is also unclean. You're not supposed to do that. But why does he do that? Well, it's revealed to us because of this. Okay, it's this. God acted. Because he was heartbroken. He, his heart was broken. And so we look back at the story of 1 Kings. How was God feeling when this happened? When the widow's only son died, we could look at Jesus and find out that the way that, the, that God saw the situation was his heart was broken. That if God had internal organs, it was twisting. It was like, oh, I can't believe this is what's happened to you. Please, please, oh, I, I wish that didn't happen to you. Look what sin has done in our lives. It has brought death, it has brought crying and mourning and weeping. I wish there was a world where that didn't happen anymore. And that's exactly what Jesus demonstrated when this happened. You know, motherhood, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not a mom, you know, um, but my wife is, and she's been a mother for five years now. And, man, there's been a lot of fun times. Right? We look at the kids and the first steps and the first words that we think that he or she said. We're like, I, I'll take it. You know, that's a word. You know? And we have a lot of fun moments. We have pictures. We have videos of all these fun things. But with it also comes heartache. And if you're a mom, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you know it way more than I do because I'm not a mom. But when our kids were sick last week, you know, and I shared a little bit about that last week, you know, my wife couldn't sleep at night because she was wondering, like, is, are they going to be okay? Is, 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 is she breathing okay? You know, and she didn't have to go through this before the kids were born, but all of a sudden when she became a mom, all of a sudden she's experiencing pains that she's never felt before. She's experiencing worries that she's no, never felt before. And through it all, you're wondering, what does Jesus think about this? Where is God in all this? When my wife is up at night thinking, I, I can't sleep because I'm worried about my kids, where is God in all this? And according to what we just read in Luke chapter 7, we know that God is right there with her, weeping and mourning and worrying with her. Not that God has to worry. He knows how things are going to turn out. But our God is a God of empathy. 
God puts himself in your shoes and mourns with you. And so I know this is kind of like a really sad story, right? You know, it's like Mother's Day. Let's go to church and hear a happy story. No, <laughs> this is a really sad story, but I, I hope that this is an encouragement for all of us, that our God is not a God that just stands hundreds and thousands of miles away looking at us saying, oh, look at them, they're suffering, oh, too bad. That this God, our God, jumps right into the shoes that we're in right now and says, I'm going to sit there with you, I'm going to mourn with you, I'm going to weep with you, I'm going to be there right with you because I love you. Our God is a God of compassion. And I think that is something that's amazing about our God. That this amazing God who has control and has foresight about everything <clears throat> chooses to come down to our level and sit with us and cry with us and feel with us. Amen? All right, let's pray.